Our scripture reading for the sermon today comes from Psalm 75. Uh, it's page number 487 in the Pew Bibles, if you want to turn and read along with me. Now, last week I mentioned that there is a psalm for every moment in life, and I introduced you to some of the kinds of psalms, psalms of praise, trust, lament, repentance, which is a kind of lament, psalms of thanksgiving, etc. Those categories are helpful to us, and we certainly see distinctions between the psalms, but we also see how these psalms, these kinds of psalms often blend together. Uh, overlapping within a single psalm. And that's actually what we see in Psalm 75. Elements of thanksgiving and praise mingled with the dominant theme of trust. Trust in the Lord's justice, specifically. Now, uh, I, I want to touch on this for a moment. Uh, one of the reasons why thanksgiving and praise and trust mingle so easily is that they all flow out of the psalmist worldview. Uh, Jay Sklar from Covenant Seminary developed a few questions and answers uh, illustrating how the psalm writer's view of God shaped their view of the world. That is, how they applied their understanding of who the Lord is, of His character, how they applied it through praise and trust and thanksgiving and lament. And, and I invite you to take a look at the slides behind me. Uh, Jay, uh, my professor, used to run through these questions every single day of class. And personally, I found them helpful in re reminding me of my own, uh, of uh, shaping my own worldview. And so I actually plan to use these whenever I preach for the rest of the summer. I'll, I'll read the questions. If you would read together, read out loud the answers. First, who is the Lord? The God of steadfast love and justice. What does He do? He blesses and protects those who embrace His covenant from the heart while demonstrating His justice against those who rebel against Him. When does He do these things? Often in the here and now and certainly in the world to come. So, what should we do? Embrace His covenant from the heart and wait patiently yet fervently for His justice. Now, uh, thank you, Esther. You can turn those off. Uh, these are actually in the bulletin insert uh, along with some questions for you to consider either as a small group or as a family. Uh, but do you notice how in, in these questions there's an emphasis on two aspects of God's character, namely His steadfast love and justice? And it's vital that we hold those two things together. Can we imagine the despair of believing Him to be a God of justice only? We'd be crushed beneath the weight of His holiness. But we must also imagine the horror of living in a world with a God who only loves, who is not concerned with justice. Bob Dylan wrote a song, The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, telling the generally factual story of how William Zanzinger killed poor Hattie Carroll with a cane that he twirled around his diamond ring finger. At a Baltimore Hotel Society gathering, 
And the cops were called in and his weapon took from him as they rode him in custody down to the, stable, to the station and booked William Zanzinger for first-degree murder. But, Dylan sings, Take the rag away from your face. Now ain't the time for tears. He goes on to describe 24-year-old William Zanzinger's immense wealth, his parents who protected him, his relatives in high office in Maryland. Uh, Dylan shows us a man who swears and sneers and shrugs his shoulders at what he's done. A man who gets out on bail in minutes. But now ain't the time for tears, Dylan says. He sings about Hattie, how she bore ten children, how she carried dishes and took out the garbage, how she never sat at the head of the table, how she never even sat at the table, how she never did wrong to William. And then Dylan takes us into the courtroom for the trial. In the courtroom of honor, the judge pounded his gavel to show that all's equal and that the courts are on the level and that the strings in the books ain't pulled and persuaded and that even the nobles get properly handled. Once that the cops have chased after and caught him and that the ladder of law has no top and no bottom, stared at the person who killed for no reason, who just happened to be feeling that way without warning, and he spoke through his cloak most deep and distinguished, and handed out strongly for penalty and repentance, William Zanzinger with a six-month sentence. Oh, bury the rag deep in your face, Dylan sings, for now is the time for your tears. It's been said that only people who live comfortable lives want a God who only loves But people who know suffering, people who know war, who know abuse, who endure oppression under heavy hands, such people long for justice to be done, for wrong things to be made right. And you know that that longing, if it's left up to men, will never be fully met. Justice for Hattie Carroll or for you And the wrongs that you've suffered, true justice only happens if God is deeply concerned with it. And here in Psalm 75, we hear that our God is truly the God of steadfast love and justice. Pray with me as we come to this word that we would know him better and knowing him, rest in him today. Father, we do come to you asking your blessing on the reading and the preaching of your word. Father, shape our hearts that we might be a people who love your justice and your love and seek to demonstrate the grace that you have shown to us through our Lord Jesus toward others in this world. This we ask for the sake of your name, for your son that you've given for us. In His name we pray. Amen. Psalm 75. We give thanks to You, O God. We give thanks for Your name is near. We recount Your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. 
When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The heading of this psalm is a psalm of Asaph, which gives us a sense of when this was written. Asaph was one of the chief musicians appointed by David when the Ark of the Covenant was moved to Jerusalem. So the setting for this song, generally speaking, is a time of peace. And that's perhaps, as we hear in verse 1, that's perhaps why a sense of thanksgiving fills Asaph's heart. When he says, we recount your wondrous deeds... Asaph urges God's people to rehearse to themselves redemptive history so that they'll remember what God has already done for His people. He's urging them to remember the distant past, like when God made a covenant with Abraham and then how He kept that covenant with His people through the Exodus. God's people should remember more recent events like how God delivered them through the time of the judges and and how God raised up for them a king like David, a man after God's own heart. And, And this is important. And they're remembering, they're recounting the events, uh, the, the wondrous deeds of the Lord. That remembering becomes fuel. It becomes fuel for their present thanksgiving that they offer. But it also is fuel for trust in the Lord. They can trust the Lord in the future because they have seen how He has done in the past. And they're going to need to trust the Lord in the future because there is real calamity, real injustice in this world. And God's people must wait For the Lord to accomplish true justice. How's your memory? I'm not talking about where you left your keys. But how's your memory about who the Lord is and what He's done? In the calamities of your life. or When you see or experience for yourself deep wronging. Does uh, forgetfulness... Does a sense of forgetfulness rob you of the ability to give thanks today? And does that same sense of forgetfulness about who the Lord is and what He's already done, does it also rob you of your trust in Him for tomorrow, for what may come? Do you find it hard to believe sometimes that God really does care about what's right? Or do you find it hard... To trust Him with your tomorrow. There is such help 
in recounting the wondrous deeds of the Lord because they remind us of His wondrous character. And knowing His loving and just character enables us to trust that the judge of the earth will do what is right. But what does it look like to trust in the Lord's justice? Trusting the Lord to do justice seems to be the main point of this psalm. But how is that lived out in the everyday? I want you to consider two aspects that we see in the psalm. Trusting Him means, first, we listen to the judge who speaks promises and warnings. And second, trusting Him means we rely on the judge who puts down and who lifts up. So first, trusting the Lord begins with listening to the judge who speaks promises and warnings. In verses 2 and 3, we hear His promises. The most obvious is in verse 2 when He says, I will judge with equity. Like... In Dylan's song, when a judge fails to do justice, such uneven treatment is always worthy of our tears. We feel the wrongness of, of saying that Hattie's Carol, Hattie Carroll's life was worth only six months in prison. But here, God promises equity. Before him, there are no privileged sons. There is no wealth or status that can sway his mind. In his court, all are judged evenly. And so in this promise, he assures his people that fair, true justice will be seen. But we also see a second promise in verse 2. A promise about timing. God says that all will be judged fairly at the set time that I appoint, he says. The question of when that time will be isn't answered specifically. It rests only with the Lord himself. Experience tells us what the psalmist, I'm sure, knew, that some do get their earthly comeuppance now. Sometimes justice is seen in the present, but that... That doesn't always fit our experience. But whether it happens here and now on earth, or before His throne on the last day, the Lord assures that there will be a time when true justice, His justice, shines forth, when wrongs are made right, when evil is punished. But the timing rests with Him alone. These promises ultimately reassure God's people, enabling them to trust the Lord today and tomorrow, even when the world feels like it's falling apart. Look at verse 3. This image of of a tottering earth, of the inhabitants of the world rolling around. This is an image of calamity. These are the images of... Uh, of how injustice in this world makes us feel. It makes us feel unstable, like things could just fall apart any moment. 
But even when God's people were shaken to the core, even then they could rest in the knowledge that their unshakable God upholds all things and will restore all things to the way that they're supposed to be. He is the one who steadies the pillars of the earth. He's the one who will restore. And that restoration, that restoration is really what Justice is all about. Justice is about so much more than simply punishing wrong. It runs deeper than an eye for an eye. When the Lord here promises judgment, He's promising that wherever His shalom is broken, He will renew it. Shalom is that word that we usually translate as peace in English, but its meaning is far, far richer than we can communicate through the word peace. We typically speak of peace as simply the absence of war, the absence of conflict, but shalom, shalom describes the perfect set of circumstances that are right for the flourishing of life in every way. And so when the Lord promises justice... To judge truly and rightly. He's saying that he himself will undo all injustice. Everything that tears the fabric of shalom. He will undo it all and replace it with peace that is whole and wide and deep. Maybe you need reassurance today. In an unsteady world. Whether you yourself have been wronged or your tears flow on behalf of another. Like our brothers and sisters of color who have suffered injustice disproportionately within our nation. But the Lord's promise here is a day of even-handed reckoning. Where He will restore shalom. And while we are required to await His timing, even now He assures us that it is His hand that stabilizes even a society that cares nothing for Him. It's His hands that steady your life. And that promise has always been a comfort To God's people. That promise itself that we embrace by faith is what enables us to wait patiently. Even if we wait fervently, we wait patiently for His justice. And our ability, our our trust in Him uh, is only deepened because His promises also come with warnings. The warnings in this passage speak comfort to God's people, even as it speaks a challenge to those who believe themselves to be untouchable. The, the warning comes in verses 4 and 5. Look with me, where the Lord speaks to the boastful and to the wicked. Now, in the Psalms, and this really fits that worldview of the psalmist, there are really only two kinds of people in the world. There are the righteous, who are mentioned in verse 10 here at the end, The righteous who are not right with God because they're perfect, but rather because they embrace the Lord. And they embrace His covenant from the heart. They embrace the Lord by faith. And so they are counted as righteous. There are the righteous and then there are the wicked. 
And the wicked are those who reject the Lord, who reject His covenant. And so the boastful, then, would be those, proud, those who proudly, who loudly despise the Lord and His covenant, who have no qualms about breaking shalom to assert their own power. But the Lord warns them, do not boast. Do not lift up your horns. The horns being a symbol of power. Do not lift up your horns. Don't celebrate your own strength. In other words, for those who use their positions of power for selfish promotion, those who use their strength to hurt or manipulate or oppress the weak, the Lord makes it clear that they have in Him an opponent who is stronger than them. And though they toss their horns today like a raging bull against them, He assures them in verse 10 that He will cut off their horns. He Himself will bring their power and their plans to nothing. The tragedy is that although He speaks warning, the proud don't have the ears to hear it. But if you hear him, then consider the effect his warning is supposed to have on you. Look at verses 6 and 7. Here, the Lord sets out some boundaries for his people, using the imagery of lifting up to talk about restoring what is wrong, of doing justice. He says that it comes, lifting up comes, not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness. In other words, as one writer says, search where you will. There is no other judge but God. What do people tend to do when they're hurting? But look for remedies. They look for the solution. Now, if, if we hear what the Lord's saying here, Uh, uh, We're not saying that we cannot make use of lawful means that are open to us to pursue justice for ourselves or on behalf of others. But I'm saying that if we heed this warning, if we understand that there is no other judge but God, I'm saying that we need to check our expectations and our methods. If we expect true justice from earthly sources, from men, or if we try to take justice into our own hands, we will always be disappointed. And we may even be found. We may even be found doing injustice ourselves. Because the Lord says to leave room for His wrath, for His vengeance. If we ourselves try to take revenge into our own hands, it is it's far too easy for us to go too far. But if we confess with the psalmist in verse 7 that it is God who executes judgment, then that leads us to the second aspect of trust in the Lord that we see in this passage. We trust in the Lord when we rely on the judge who puts down and lifts up. Verse 8 there opens with four. 
as Asaph establishes the reason for our reliance on God's justice. For, he says, in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed. Now this image... Uh, uh, appears in many places throughout the scriptures. In Psalm 11, the cup of the Lord is a cup full of fire and sulfur and scorching wind. It's a picture of God's terrible and righteous wrath against injustice, against every kind of sin that breaks the shalom that He established in the beginning. And just as in the ancient world they would mix in different spices into a wine to increase its potency, so God's cup is well mixed, terribly powerful, such that Isaiah and Jeremiah picture for us those who drink it. They are reeling. They are vomiting. They are staggering, crazed. They are put down on their faces, unable to rise. And there are some who must drink it. The wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs, he writes. Those who reject the Lord, who do injustice, who pridefully believe themselves beyond all accountability, to them God will present this cup. And on that set day, when God executes judgment evenly, when warnings cease and promises are kept, no shalom breaker will be able to turn away his hand. Not even Israel herself. You see, there is not just one day of the Lord. There is not just one time when his cup is poured out. There came a day in Israel's own story when they had to drink this cup of judgment. Because they rejected the Lord and they abandoned His covenant. Even, as they, uh, even though the Lord had sent prophet after prophet urging them to return to the Lord who loves them. Even, even after all those years of the prophets, they refused to repent. And the day came when the warning ceased and the cup was in part poured out through the armies of Assyria and later Babylon again. And when it came, they could not refuse him who poured it out or accuse him of being unjust. Could you accuse him of being unjust? Here is a hard, a double-edged truth. We have been unjustly wronged in this world. We have been sinned against, and some of you have been sinned against profoundly. But it is also true that we ourselves have broken peace. I have torn the fabric of shalom in my thoughts and in my words and in my actions. Maybe for you it's in the way that you've spoken to or treated your children or your brothers or your friends. Maybe it's in the way that you have responded when you were wronged. Maybe you've tried to take revenge for yourself through aggressive or passive-aggressive means with no memory, no memory of the Lord's right to execute justice. 
Or maybe your guilt, like mine, runs even deeper. Maybe you've been silent in the face of injustice, which is itself injustice. Maybe you sit indifferent to the oppression that your fellow humans made in the image of God experience every day. Or maybe you, like Job's friends, maybe you blame them. That they must have done something to deserve it. Such pride in our own lives leaves us liable to the same judgment as all the wicked of the earth. Because there will come a day when everyone must stand before the judge and give account for every unjust thought and word and deed. As it's written, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And so is there hope for shalom breakers on that day when the Lord pours out His cup? Praise be to God that there is hope. Because you see... There was another day when the Lord poured out His cup. On a day of wrath long ago, the Lord poured it out on Jesus, who drank it to the dregs willingly in the place of His people. You see, there are only two groups of people in the world. Those who will drink this cup, or those for whom Christ drank it already. The day is coming when the first must drink. But for those who confess that they deserve this cup and yet turn and set their hope and their faith on the Lord Jesus, God assures us that on the cross, Jesus emptied that cup of wrath for all of His people so that none of it remains for you to drink. He Himself endured slanderous accusations. He endured the betrayal of a friend, the desertion of His disciples. He endured a joke of a trial, an unjust sentence from an unjust pilot. The righteous judge of the earth suffered an unjust, shameful death in order to fulfill the requirement God's righteous requirement that shalom breakers be cut off and put down. And this He did, being lifted up on the cross so that you who hope in Him might be lifted up into life. And that's why at the heart of the Gospel we hear the good news that for those in Christ, the verdict, the verdict is already in. Not guilty, By faith in Jesus and for Christ's sake. And instead of a cup of wrath, for us is given a cup of blessing. The cup that we bless belongs to us. Which This is the fullness of God's promise in chapter 10, that the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. In the resurrection of Jesus, as His death becomes our death, as His suffering is counted as the payment for our sin... His resurrection, His new life is counted as ours. And we, by faith in Him, are lifted up in Him. And already we begin experiencing the restoration of shalom that God promises will be ours forever. 
When we recount those wondrous deeds of the Lord that He has done through Jesus, our Lord Himself leads us back to trust in Him as the God of steadfast love and justice. Because we see in Jesus that He is both. I would urge you that as you remember Christ who satisfied God's justice against us, I would urge you to give thanks to the Lord. In Him we become a thankful people who are able even today to give thanks even as we await the coming day. Because none who hope in Christ will be put to shame. But as we rely on Christ, as we move forward trusting in Him, we become a trusting people who are content to follow in Christ's steps while entrusting ourselves, like Jesus did, to the one who judges justly. You understand that there is still calamity, there is still deep injustice that you will experience in this life until the Lord comes again. And yet we can go through those things. We can endure those wrongings and trusting ourselves to the one who judges justly. He is the God who sees. He is the God who repays. But until He repays, He is the one who demonstrates through His people that yes, He is a God of justice. We are called to work on behalf of the poor and the oppressed to protect those, to be a voice for the people who don't have a voice. And yet we're also called to demonstrate even to our enemies that our God is a God of steadfast love and mercy. Because as we walk forward as a trusting people, we also walk forward as a humble people. Remembering, we remember the very first vow that we take as members of Christ's church. We acknowledge ourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly, rightly deserving His displeasure, and without hope except in His sovereign mercy, which He has lavished on us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so relying on Christ, we follow in His steps. We walk in the humility of Christ Himself. And we become humble people who love mercy and do justice in this world. I wish we had more time to flesh that out. But ultimately, we do all of this because the gospel turns us into a praising people who follow the psalmist's lead that we hear in verse 10. Praising the Lord today and anticipating that our praise will reach into eternity. I will declare it forever, the psalmist says. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. As the Lord Himself has lifted us up in Christ, as we have the hope of true justice being done in this world, we lift up His name forever through the Lord Jesus Christ. For in Him we see and we know and we love the God of steadfast love and justice. Let's pray together. 
Father, we praise You for making Yourself known to us as this God, this God who loves justice, who promises His people that all the wrongs that we endure will one day be made right. And yet, Father, we praise You as the God of grace, of steadfast love, because You Yourself have satisfied Your own justice. The justice that should have fallen on us for all the wrongs we have done, You put onto Christ. And so, Father, shape us into the kind of people who quickly give thanks, who quickly show grace, who quickly defend those in need of defense. And Father, all of this we pray so that we might bring honor and glory to the name of Christ our Savior, who gave Himself up for us, who suffered great injustice for us, so that we might be lifted up to You. In His name we pray. Amen.